0: Let's continue where we left off. If you recall, it had to do with keeping the mind that decided to practice. Do you remember that one? (laughs) And how has that one been for all of us? And... Mostly keeping the mind that decided to practice compared to all the other minds that we might keep, which don't really want to practice, mainly had to do with samadhi up until now. So that keeping that mind meant time and time again developing the ability to come back to the same object the breath, over and over and over again. And then when we can hardly stand it anymore, again and again. And so for that particular practice, that's the quality that we were developing. And it was at least, I hope, plausible to you that to even know that you could develop a place of refuge, as you would go into a, uh, as you develop it, a calm and concentrated place to get out of harm's way. In a sense, that's one of the main functions of the Samadhi practice is to get out of harm's way. All the many other preoccupations that we could get involved with that the mind throws up to us and which we run after like little doggies. You know, running after a bone. And the practice is to become more like a lion. Rather than running after everything that's thrown out by the mind, as doggies do, the lion just looks at the source. Just stays put. It's not interested in running after any little bones, but by and large have nothing on it anyway. (laughs) Some of them are now made out of these artificial substances for the dogs. There's absolutely no nourishment in them. The lion stays put. It's not impressed with what the mind throws out. It looks to where the throwing is coming from. That's why it's a lion and not a doggy. Just so don't we, uh, don't see the samadhi practice as um, too much of preparation for something else. That is, it's true. It's developing a calm and stable mind so that it can be used for something else. That something else being uh, wisdom, the pursuit, the promotion, the development of wisdom, investigation. But it's in its own right invaluable. in some ways, simply that you can get out of harm's way, that you have a place to seclude yourself in, to refresh yourself, to nourish yourself so that it's possible to live fully in the life of wisdom. But also, when you're in a calm and concentrated state, That is a real moment in your life. It's not as if the only reason we do it is to get on with Vipassana. Because the truth is that whatever we encounter is our life, no matter where we are, from moment to moment. Even though very often we look at things as if that's not so. I'm here in order to get there and we're not particularly concerned about the quality of life here. Because after all, it's only a means to get there. But in its own right, it's a good way to be alive, to reside in stillness. For example, the Buddha, even after enlightenment, would take extended periods of time and uh, in one sutta he made it very clear that he would use the breath. Now, there was no place for him to go. It's not that he had to achieve something else. He would use the breath to live in stillness for extended periods of time because it was a good place to live, to hang out. It was also very good for physical health and so forth. So it's just another way to live. Now we move to wisdom. If you recall, the, these are guardians of the heart. And some of you have gotten a little confused by that term. The heart, or chitta. Uh, it's used very much in the Thai forest tradition. Uh, I can't say that it's used in all the Buddhist traditions, but it is used there. It isn't uh, to answer a few of the questions and maybe fewer notes as a result. Um, depending on how you use mind, that sometimes it would mean the same thing and at other times it would, it would mean something rather different because the English words are not used in a uniform way. Sometimes mind is used in a limited way. Limited meaning the psychological functions, thinking, remembering, perceiving, imagining, and so forth. Uh, the materials that psychologists work with. And if it's used exclusively that way, the chitta goes well beyond that. It includes that. So the heart, as we use the term heart, goes beyond that. Um, If the mind is used in another sense, for example, in Zen, sometimes they talk about no mind or sometimes big mind. Then it's getting more, probably the same or similar as this usage, Uh, which is a it includes. uh, This is another, I think, kind of question that at least a few of you have had heart doesn't isn't limited to just to sentimentality or sentiments or just emotion it includes them but it goes well beyond them uh the chitta is that which knows in us and the depth to which that knowingness can be is of course the depth of a buddha uh complete knowing completely accurate and true knowing we also know each one of us but uh, not cor- not correctly all the time. And so the heart is protected by samadhi by getting out of the way of trouble and by healing itself in the stillness. Now, when we come to wisdom, we get involved with a term that's extremely important. Um, and I'll mention it. We'll talk a little bit about it tonight and I hope you uh, think about it and use it when you get home or study it a bit more, mainly so you can understand it in yourself. It's an extremely important term called sati-panya. Sati means mindfulness and panya is sometimes translated as wisdom or discernment. Sometimes the two together, sati-panya, is translated, I think in a very beautiful way, as truth-discerning awareness. Let's take the first member of that, sati or mindfulness. We hear a lot about that term. You've heard it, it's probably coming out of your ears by now, just the few days we've been here. Just to to give you a feeling for it with a a few different notions, all of them very similar but just slightly different. What is this mindfulness? What is it or what's it like? One aspect of mindfulness or sati is its mirror-like quality. It has this capacity to mirror. So that for example, if this is sati, this is my hand and, and this other hand comes in front of it, it shows it as it is, it reflects it. And if I take my hand away, then the sati would show that plant because that's just what's in front of it. There's no residue. It's not like this left anything on. It's the mirror, assuming it's a, a pure mirror. it's not cracked, etc. So it has this ability to reflect what's in front of it. And when we aim our attention at what's happening, there's that mirror-like quality. It also is unbiased. It's unbiased in the sense that it's equally interested. A mirror is not gonna say, well, I don't wanna reflect that. That's okay, that, this side of the hand is all right, I like that, I'm gonna reflect it. It's unbiased, that's part of what mirroring means. It's not judgmental, which is pretty much the same thing or similar in that it doesn't like certain things and so it, it doesn't really look at them as carefully. And so there's a kind of evenness to it in this mirroring quality. It's preconceptual. It has nothing whatsoever to do with thought. But as we're learning mindfulness, if you look carefully, and probably all of you know this, we have these few moments of this preconceptual knowing, and then thought comes in very, very quickly. And as the practice deepens, one of the things that happens is the duration of these preconceptual moments lengthens. Whereas there's a mirroring and a reflecting of what's happening without thought in a more clear way uh, for, for a longer period. It has no goal. Mindful has no goal at all. This is an important one. Many of the questions in the groups have to do, sometimes people will say, well, I looked at it and it didn't go away. Have you ever said that or heard other people say that? That's not the job of mindfulness. Mindfulness, its only goal is mindfulness. Its job is to see. Now, the truth is we know that sometimes it does go away because mindfulness, the seeing is not, is a very powerful and very subtle energy. The more subtle it becomes, the more powerful it becomes. And that's why Krishnamurti could talk about it as the flame of awareness. That's one image for it. But if you're trying to use mindfulness to burn something up, it's not mindfulness anymore, because now you've set a goal for it, which is other than the clear seeing. Now this one is a difficult for us, a difficult one for us, because in growing up, probably most of us have not learned very much about just pure observation, just how to watch, how to observe something. And usually what it amounts to is when we observe, we're always observing to get something out of the observation. Money, safety, a relationship, something. We're observing in order to. And so sometimes we get close. I think Perhaps many or all of us have experienced it at times when we drop our guard and we're just in nature or perhaps aesthetically, perhaps you're looking at a a beautiful work of art or a sunset and just for a moment, there's just the seeing without any other motive, just pure seeing. And so if you're looking at something and asking the question, well, it didn't go away with disappointment, Uh, you have to see that that isn't what it's about. I mean, if it goes away, fine. But if it doesn't go away, that's not the issue. What we're attempting to do is to place our attention on that which we're attempting to to see. Another important aspect of sati, or mindfulness, is that it only happens now, right in this moment. That's all. So you're either going to use it right at the too late. Well that's it it's not mindfulness otherwise it could be something else. So it happens right now all those qualities. It's also something that contrary to some people's misconception of it being a kind of cold or distant kind of thing it's not looking with a spyglass or with binoculars it's participant observation. As you become you become one with what you're watching you participate in that which you're observing. It's very different. It's intimate. And as the practice deepens, I think it's safe to say that what it is is training in intimacy. Intimacy in the sense that uh, we experience everything with greater sensitivity and more directly, whether it's a sound or a taste or a bodily sensation or whatever it is. So we participate in uh, what it is that we're mindful of. And the frame of reference is not self. It doesn't have to do with I'm being mindful. Although as we begin it, of course that's what we're doing a lot of. And that's very much related to the results. How how could it be otherwise? We can't help ourselves. We come to the practice wanting something from it and that's only natural and we want it for some kind of a self. So that's, in a sense, the sati part. Now what's panya? Or discernment? Or wisdom or wise seeing? It's, when, it's, when things are, are going well in the practice, it's, you can't separate it. It's very difficult or almost impossible to separate it. It means that there's not only mindfulness. That is, um, it's only that which you become mindful of that that wisdom can understand. If you don't become mindful of something, that is, if you're unable to contemplate, if sati is not unable to contemplate the particular object, then Wisdom can't go to work. Not really. What it would be, would be thinking, imagining. So that step number one is we have to connect with reality. Whatever the reality is that we're attempting to examine. Whether it's a breath, or fear, or a sound. So that which mindfulness contemplates can wisdom understand. Or as you, in a sense, can hold it steady, steadily, And then there's something in us, a kind of intelligence, that begins to grasp something about that which you're examining. They're closely related. We begin to see the characteristics, we begin to see the features of the object that we're being mindful of. And most important, as it becomes used in a doctrinal way in Buddhist practice, in in Vipassana practice, it has to do with seeing cause and effect in one sense that's karma and it's also seeing from moment to moment how we put together problems how uh, i think the the model of learning the dharma model of learning is a very simple one let me suggest what I think it is and then we'll go on uh, because we'll be dealing with other examples which are not as obvious. If you put your hand in fire, say if I should stick my hand in fire right at this moment, I would get burned, I would pull away, I'd get hurt. And if I'm paying attention, even if I'm not paying much attention, something gets learned. Oh, now some people do it once and that's the first and last time, they don't do it anymore. They do something, there's, a, there's an effect to that which they've done, and the effect is to teach them something about what's just happened. Is Well, I'm not going to do that one again. But then there are others of us. We stick our hand in the fire, we get burned, and then instead of stopping, we go looking for the most extraordinary ointment there is in town. The latest Swiss ointment that we can put on the burn, and just great bandages, and... Uh, and then we talk wonderfully about how it only took about two months to heal and then we are ready for it again and then we stick our hand in the fire again. Now clearly fire is a pretty easy one. Most of us learn that one quickly. But I mention it only because it's a paradigm for the way in which we can learn about other things which are often uh, not so obvious. In fact, they may appear to be one thing that's quite desirable and yet we keep getting burned because we don't understand. So that the sequence goes, mindfulness, if we can contemplate something, if mindfulness can contemplate something, then discernment comes in and understands it and it's through the understanding that we can let go. Now, if you recall the other evening, we talked about the Buddha saying that the no taste surpasses the taste of the Dharma And that stillness, the stillness that comes from samadhi, for most people, is the beginnings of that taste. But then the taste of letting go is even deeper. Even though we resist it so much, we don't want to let go, we want to hold on. And so its wisdom is the crown jewel in our practice because it's through the clear seeing increasingly that the heart comes to see what it's doing. It learns about it learns how to care for itself. What we've been talking about probably for the whole retreat is how to take care of our own mind, our own heart. To care for the chitta. Now we're usually too busy using it. And then trying to patch things up or enjoying some of the, the fruit of when we use it in a in a nice way. Here we're Pushing the frontier back a bit, more deeply. And what we're interested in is how to care for this chitta, how to care for ourselves. You know how we all say to each other, take care. Be good if we did. And we often do on certain levels. And this is just perhaps the most subtle level of caring for ourselves, and the most important. Okay, now, what um, is discernment discerning? What's it got to see? What's it looking for? Wisdom can be used in a generalized sense. And in one, in one way is just to know enough to get in out of the rain. Which probably all of us don't know from time to time. I didn't a little while ago and I caught a cold. But most of the time I do get in, know enough to get out of the rain. Or just the kind of know-how that makes life easier. If there's a very loud sound and we're trying to talk, we pause and we wait until, let's say, the truck goes by and then when it's gone, then we start to speak. Because if we speak while the sound is going on, no one will hear us. These are little pieces of intelligence that we use which enable us to live uh, more happily. So that wisdom is the science or the art of happiness. How to live happily. The reason it's needed is because we often live foolishly. And in this practice, the wisdom is taken, comes out of the foolishness. We're watching what is. If the Samadhi, you know, if the the Samadhi um, focus was on Staying with one object. What we have to do now is we move into uh, work with vipassana. It's bringing attention to the way things are. And now we need, in other words, to keep the mind at the side of the practice is somewhat different when we move, from, when that practice is no longer samadhi but is now vipassana or insight work. Now we need another quality, something else to learn. Not that ability to land on something and just Stick to it. In breath, out breath. In breath, out breath, or whatever. That quality. Now we need that for everything. But now, a very important quality in in developing wisdom, is to keep continuously bring attention to the way things are. And what does that mean? The way things are. Yeah. This is the other side of what was said about what sati is. It's this direct experience. For example, if you were to eat a banana and an apple, they're both sweet. And no doubt we could describe the sweetness to some degree. It probably wouldn't be too adequate. And maybe a chemist could give us a real rundown as to just how a a banana differs from an apple. But when you come down to it finally, because it's preconceptual, there's, you chew into it, there's banana sweet and there's apple sweet. And that's just the way it is. So apple sweet is just like this. And banana sweet is just like this. And the way you know it is you have to bite into an apple and you have to bite into a banana. And what we're learning, what we have to learn now as we're moving into wisdom we have to develop what has been called, come what may, seeing. It was said of the Buddha that he had perfected, come what may, seeing, which means just what it sounds like. Come what may, there we are paying attention. Now, as you know, that's not so easy because we have preferences. There are many things we do not want to be mindful of. Haven't we all had enough of this? We've known that. We've seen it over the past few days. And yet, a lot of what we're learning is this opening up to the way things are with no exemptions, no exceptions. So that not only is the attentiveness unbiased, but that which we're willing to look at. There are no bounds. Now, we don't start there. Ajahn Chah, who's, I know many of you have read, a a very wonderful Thai forest master who strongly influenced my own and continues to influence my own uh, practice, talked about his young days as a monk in the forest um, and what a hard time he had. And this may be inspiring, I hope it is to all of us. That sometimes he'd be so discouraged just wandering alone in the forest and meditating that he wanted to commit suicide contemplated suicide many times. And he talked about one day when it was pouring rain and he felt suicidal and he was just crying and the tears were getting him wet and the rain was getting him wet and he just felt awful. But he discovered one thing about himself that he had the capacity to sit through anything. And that's what we're developing. We're learning it's not, it's not something that happens automatic with the snap of the fingers. We're learning how to gradually extend the range of what it is that we're able to allow in and to fully experience. So that we can see the way things are. If we have a very narrow range, then we're only seeing what we want to see. For example, if you just limit this to self-knowledge, You can't sort of want to get to know yourself. You can't kind of want to get to know yourself. Well, I sort of want to know this side of myself, but, and I don't mind presenting a few token, awful things about myself to show you how open I am or how willing I am to learn, but no, not that one. So that self-knowledge really has to do with Constantly, gradually being able to open to more and more. And those of you who have practiced for a while, I think it's safe to say that that's what happens as you practice. So much so that at times we invite trouble because we know that it's a wonderful thing to do. But we invite just so much trouble so that we can grow a bit, not too much, so that we're overwhelmed. Again, in the Thai forest tradition, uh, they use the form of training, which I'm not suggesting we do. But we have our own versions of it. They would often practice, the, the main teacher who started this practice was a man named Ajahn Mun. And he and the, the yogis who practiced with him would go to the most dangerous parts of the jungle, where there would be tigers and snakes And the reason they would go there and sometimes wild elephants because of what that would provoke. In other words, that would flush out fear. (laughs) And so you can read the lives of some of these uh, meditators. They would do things like do their walking meditation right within the range of, of tigers. They could hear and smell the tigers. And the practice was Of course fear would come up, but to work with it, either through the direct perception, one way, through the direct perception of fear, and knowing that if there was no fear, there was no problem with tigers. If there was fear, there could be a problem. You could be the evening meal. Now, I'm not suggesting we do that. And they used other methods as well. But the main thing is that they took on a challenge to actually invite some of the qualities inside us that we most want to avoid. And we, in our own way, do it. And more and more, uh, in my own practice, and I know some of you rather well, I know you do it. For example, if you should take do a self retreat by alone, not at IMS, and ideally not at any place with Buddhas or anything like that, but just say in a house somewhere or a hut, Pretty often, if not always, what you're inviting is loneliness, at least loneliness, and possibly fear as well. And when you're ready, that's a wonderful practice, because you want to learn how to be able to see fear as it is. How to see loneliness just as it is. What's the taste of loneliness? What's the taste of fear? Now, most of us are not looking for that, are we? We're trying to get away from that. And so I'm just, I'm taking, to me these are not really extreme examples, but to some degree they may seem that way. But it's something that we grow into. We're more able to examine something, but remember it's from a certain perspective. If you recall some of the ideas about sati, it's not to look at something so that it goes away we're bringing attention to something just to see the way it is. If there's irritation, how's it like for the heart to have irritation in it? Can we contemplate irritation? What's it like? What does that feel like? That, oddly enough, is the most practical thing you can do. And it's when we start becoming what we think is practical by Trying to make awareness into a kind of ray gun or something, or, you know, we aim our awareness at something in the hopes that it'll fall down and leave us alone. That isn't the practice. So the practice is surrendering to the object as it is and letting it reveal itself, letting it tell its own story and its own language. And we're coming to that slowly and gradually. Can you allow a breath to just be what it is? Can you just feel an in-breath just as it is? It's not even a breath. It's no words. Or what we call the kalesas. There are no kalesas. There's just what's there. But we have to communicate. But let's say there is something like anguish. Can you let that in? Can Now, in order for that to happen, there's a lot of preparation, some of which is the samadhi work. If the samadhi is weak, it's rather doubtful if you can look at something like that because we don't want to see it. Oh boy. I feel we have to cover this, but it may take more than this evening. What? what discernment is attempting to see is what the Kalesas are trying to keep us from seeing. Now, this this is from the point of view of the Buddha's teaching. This is a doctrinal point of view. You're not asked to believe in it because this is not a belief system. But what you are asked to do is to consider it and then to test it in your own practice, in your own life. The teachings are saying that everything is impermanent. Anything that has the nature to arise, also always has the nature to pass away. Wherever you look, there's nothing exempt from that. It's an ocean of impermanence. Not only that, that this impermanence, and to a great extent because of the impermanence, there's a lot of unsatisfactoriness and uncertainty in the world. We never really can depend on anything. Things keep changing in ways which we never anticipated. And there's no solid self, no core, no enduring entity that can control this process that I've just described, that can stand up to it, that's strong enough that can say, all right, I can stand up to impermanence and unsatisfactoriness. I'm Clark Gable, I can do that or I'm Joe DiMaggio, or I'm Buddha, or I'm Jesus Christ. No one can stand up to it. In short, there's what we call anatta, no self. So there's the teaching is of anicca, impermanence, of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, of stress, of of gross and very, very subtle kinds, very subtle existential kinds. And the absence of an enduring self. The Kalesas have something else to say. From the point of view of wisdom, you could see the Kalesas as the three hallucinations. And what they're saying is, things are permanent. We're having a ball here on planet Earth and you are yourself a self. Don't worry about it. So they're, in effect, denying the truth, covering up the truth of impermanence. It's as if things are permanent. Doesn't it? Don't we live as if we're going to live forever? And so much of what we're doing and what we've taught is that we're just having a ball on planet Earth. It's the most fantastic place to be. Not that there's anything wrong with planet Earth, but certainly the way in which actual lives seem to get lived out, this doesn't seem to be accurate. If any of you feel that Uh, perhaps Corrado and I were overstating all this Kalesa stuff. All you have to do is turn on the 6 o'clock news, but more important, look into your own heart. So that to say that the other emphasis, which is that we're all having a ball, it's not true, it's a hallucination, which is not saying that there aren't great wonders in life and extraordinary joys, which there are. And, of course, this major hallucination that we exist in some solid way. That there really is a self. Now I'd like to at least lay the groundwork tonight for something that we can continue. Um, the work of, of wisdom is to bring Sati, that we've talked about a bit, and Panya, this discernment, to bring them together so that they can focus in on some aspect of experience, and not only to be attentive of of this aspect of experience, but to see it clearly, to learn about it, to understand the way it is. And from the point of view of this wisdom perspective, the way it is is that it's If it arises, it will pass away. It's impermanent. There's a current of unsatisfactoriness that runs through existence, periodically covered over by lots of joy. But there's this current that runs through all that exists. And there isn't any coherent or enduring self. And so the job of wisdom is to begin to really see that. Now let's take the most difficult one first, the sanata, because it's already come up in the groups. And if we can say a little bit about that tonight, of course, even impermanence and dukkha have their profound aspects. It's not just the obvious stuff, but at least we can grasp those. It's the the self, this not-self thing that drives people crazy. I don't know. Maybe this is a unique group, but most people at first resist it or hate it or don't understand it or think they do, but really don't. It's a very profound one. It is the final kind of understanding. It leads into understandings of emptiness and uh, it's necessary to penetrate for liberation to happen. So it's not as if you see it once and, oh yeah, I understand anatta. It's something that must be seen over and over again at increasing levels of depth. Not that I always fully understood it or fully understand it now, but I've wrestled with it for a long time. I've always been uh, totally intrigued with it. I was more interested in it than impermanence or dukkha. That that there isn't an enduring self. I thought the most important question was, who am I? It is. Oh, I see, the answer is not quite what I thought it would be. But when starting to teach, this is something I only learned a short while ago, a few years ago. I ran into, when you teach impermanence, fine you teach dukkha there's some resistance some people have emotional resistance to acknowledging that there's a fair amount of dis- of distress in life physical and emotional pain but then when you get to anatta the brows start furrowing and the head start rolling and the i don't know start coming out and time and time again i would try to teach it as best i could and I kept seeing all these reactions all the time and then what I learned was what happened to me is what happened to an MIT professor some years ago, this is a true story. I mean, namely, I I unconsciously stopped teaching anatta, just barely mentioned it. What happened to this MIT professor, he was a professor of behavioral psychology and he was teaching about the power of reinforcement that if you give a positive reinforcement, people go in a positive direction. If you punish them, they go away. Kind of Pavlov, an American Pavlov. And so his students tried a very interesting experiment. They were in class and he was a pacer. He would teach by going back and forth from the left to the right and right to the left. A very good lecturer. And so every time he would go to the right, they would start writing very interesting, feverishly, incredible, far out, wonderful. And then every time he go to the left, they start <laughs> yawning, uh, and they did it in a subtle way, talking to each other, scratching and you know, all this stuff. And eventually they had him pinned up against the wall. <laughs> he just couldn't move. And it took me a number of years to realize that's what they did to me. At a certain point I just simply stopped talking about it because I got tired of those furrowed brows and the quizzical looks and the antagonism and you know, then it would become very intellectual and I hated that. I didn't know how to get out of it and it was too late and I started it. But to teach uh, what we're teaching, there's no way of avoiding at least some familiarity with it. And some of it is quite accessible. Um, Corrado's no help. He's often. <laughs> 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 okay. um, I think what we'll do is. Uh, so we can have the groups and that we can have the walking and so forth and the retreat maintains some balance. We'll continue uh, with with, with what satipanya is and with some practical applications um, uh, next time.